0: Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a little loud. All right. Thank you. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. So good to be here this morning. Uh, what a wonderful day it is for us to come together and worship our God. If you've been paying attention on Sunday mornings, you've noticed that we've been going through some of the parables of Jesus. We're going to take a break from that this week, and I'd like for us to look at a passage of Scripture that we heard read for us just a few moments ago. So if you'd get your Bibles out and be turning to Romans chapter 12, we'll be there in uh, just a little bit, Romans chapter 12. I want to talk with you this morning about a very important question. Life is full of questions, by the way, we know that. Um, Some of those questions are more important than others. But we're bombarded with questions. You know, government forms, applications, tests and exams, people at work asking us questions, questions all the time. Some of those questions are very strange. Sometimes the questions make me laugh. I remember several years ago when I moved to a new city, I went to the bank to open uh, a new bank account, and uh, they got on the computer to take my information, and the very first question out of the gate, what's your mother's maiden name? Right? Before they asked me my name, they wanted my mother's maiden name. I didn't know if we were doing genealogical research on me or, or, or what at first. Um, <coughs> Uh, a couple of years ago, we went and visited my in-laws, and I just have to tell you this: my uh, uh, wife Amanda and her dad went to the pond to fish, and they went. They were actually in a rowboat in the pond, uh, in the middle of the pond, and uh, setting out trot lines. Which, by the way, I think is cheating. It's not really fishing, but they were doing that. Um, and getting the hooks ready on there, and then putting the bait on them, and he would throw the thing over his uh, shoulder. And then go to the next one. And when he threw one over his shoulder, the hook went right into the middle of his hand. And I mean, it was in far, there was a lot of weight on that. And uh, it was past the barb, he, he couldn't get it out, it was too painful. So he went to the doctor, and they got him in a room and everything, and the nurse came in and looked at the clipboard and said, when did you first notice the pain? <laughs> he said, right after the hook went in, you know. Strange question. And, th- and then, um, you know, went through the list. Or do you feel safe at home? <laughs> yes, except for when I'm fishing, <laughs> right? Um, who's the current president? I mean, he went to, like, concussion protocol for some reason. So strange questions. Uh, one more of these, I remember when Amanda took the kids to, uh, this has been years ago, but took them to a park to play, and she was sitting on the bench, uh, the picnic table there, and saw something next to her. And it was a thing that had some illegal drugs in it. So she called the police. um, A car came out, and they came and took the drugs uh, from uh, her and took a report and, you know, asked her name and everything. And among the questions they asked was, how much do you weigh? You know? What does that have to do with this? It just goes to show that no good deed goes unpunished. So there's some strange questions. Sometimes we get to ask the questions. It's one of the perks of being uh, a teacher. Uh, I get to ask people the questions. But we have those questions in our lives. But I think most of the time in life, we simply go through the motions without asking questions. Especially the thoughtful, penetrating, provocative questions. It's easier just to avoid those, and frankly, we live in a culture that discourages us from asking those deeper questions, and I think one of the most important questions that we can ask about anything is the question, why? Why? I remember when my son Paul discovered the word why. He was uh, about three, and everything was why why and then we would do the best to answer that question and then he would follow it up with why you know you can pursue that question for a very long time yeah Uh, side note to uh, kids and teens if you want to drive your parents or teachers nuts and I know you do ask that question why over and over again and see what happens all right so Those, I think the why question is a very important one, and in my attempt to be a good dad, you know, I was patient with the interminable question asking. I realized that that's how kids learn, so that's good, so we would try our best to answer the why question. I remember one time in particular, we were, um, he was, again, about three years old, and I was turning right at the light, and he said, why is the light red? And I said, you know what, that's a really good question, and I kind of got carried away there you can do a lot with that word why it can be a very penetrating question do you mean like why is the signal light red and not other colors what makes it red and so I started talking about I don't know if it's the bulbs that have different colors or I don't know if they're they're all the same color and there's a barrier or a screen that uh, makes them show up as red or yellow and green I'm showing my ignorance here about it but is that what you mean or do you mean like what's the purpose of having a red light? Why do we have red lights? And I said, you know, the, probably back when people started driving cars, they, uh, you know, more and more cars came and they'd come to a crossroads and didn't know what to do and someone invented the idea of color-coded signals and red was a pretty universal signal for stop. And, and I looked in the rear view mirror and he was on to something else. He was not listening to me at all anymore. Um, So maybe side note to uh, parents and teachers, uh, if they keep asking why, just give them a very long, winding answer to it. But I I just remember thinking, that, that why question can be really important and revealing. Why? You can do a lot with that word, why. Once during that same time in our lives, we were sitting down for dinner at the table, about to eat, and he said, why are we here? And again, I thought that's a really uh, important, profound question to ask. And I began to wax eloquent about why we are here. And I think our purpose for living is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And he said, he laughed and said, "No, we're here to eat, all right." So that's true too. But at any rate, that why question really important. It's a good way to examine and evaluate your own life let's give it a try why do you work where you do why do you have particular rules and try to live by them or enforce them why do you spend money the way you do I remember discussing with students one time in class why do you attend a Christian college and there are some good reasons for that some not so good I remember some said, because my parents made me. That's a lame reason, all right? Maybe to get a quality Christian education. That would be a good reason. How about a question that might touch most of us here this morning? Why go to church? Or why participate in the life of the church? Why contribute financially to this work? Why spend your week in service to others? Again, there may be some good reasons that we can come up with and some lame ones. One good answer for all these questions is found in and around this text that we have for our consideration this morning in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to focus on verse 1 this morning, but we'll read the first two verses. We heard it earlier. I'll give sort of a woodenly literal rendering here. And let's hear these words of the Lord through Paul again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, through the compassions of God, to offer your bodies as a living, holy, God-pleasing sacrifice, your thoughtful worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, so that you may discern what God's will is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. And the first thing that ought to strike us about this passage is that we are entering into the middle of a very long conversation here. When Paul says, therefore, here in chapter 12, we know something important has come before this, and a lot has come before, obviously, but he's really focusing here on God's mercy. So before we say anything about a living sacrifice, which we'll get to, we have to say something about what precedes this God's mercy. So if you take your Bibles there and just back up a page or two to Romans chapter 9, you notice that in this section of three chapters, 9 through 11, he says a, a lot about God's mercy. And in chapter 9, for example, <clears throat> verse 15, he's quoting from the Old Testament where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul says, verse 16, it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Then in chapter 9, verse 23, what if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. So God has objects of mercy. Then if you skip on to chapter 11, towards the end of chapter 11, the question Paul's asking here really is, okay, in light of all this, on whom does God have mercy? To whom does God show his compassion? And verse 30 of chapter 11 says that, you were at one time disobedient to God, you have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now have mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. And he sums it all up in verse 32. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. That's the answer to the question, to whom does God show his mercy? To all. And so Paul breaks into this doxology where he praises God for his unfathomable wisdom in this plan to show mercy to all through Christ. And then we get to chapter 12. In view of God's mercy. God's mercy is the reason for everything that follows here. It's the answer to every why question. Why? Because of God's mercy. So now in chapter 12, in light of God's mercy toward us in Christ, in light of the fact that he has saved us, not because of our inherent goodness, but despite our sin, what is our response to God's mercy? A sacrifice. And so first of all, that should tell us something about worship. God is the one who initiates worship in that he has created us, he's called us and redeemed us, and he's assembled us here today. And so our response of worship is just that. It is a response to the God who has blessed us already. He calls us to worship, we respond with a sacrifice. When Paul says that we should offer a sacrifice of gratitude to God, he's really saying nothing new here in the Bible. Israel had different types of sacrifices that they could make in worship to God. Sacrifices for sin, or for uncleanness, or for other reasons. These had to be made to be right with God. But then there was also a type of sacrifice that is discussed in Leviticus 3 and 7 and other places that was called a peace or fellowship offering. And it was made voluntarily out of sheer gratitude for God's blessings. The main category of this type of voluntary fellowship offering was called in Hebrew, todah, which just means thanksgiving. See how I worked a Thanksgiving sermon into Romans 12 here? Okay. In view of God's mercy, the response of God's people has always been to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, do we still offer sacrifices today? Yes. Physical sacrifices? Yes. Not animal sacrifices. But physical sacrifices, for sure, the sacrifice of our bodies. Not a sacrifice for sin, no. The once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death and His resurrection has bought our redemption, has cleansed us from our sin, thanks be to God. So what sacrifice is left for us? The voluntary sacrifice of thanksgiving. Listen to what Paul says. He describes this sacrifice that we are to offer. The sacrifice of our bodies in three ways. It is living, holy, pleasing to God. First of all, this sacrifice, he says, should be a living sacrifice. In contrast to slain animals, your body, your whole life, this is the sacrifice. Your life in self-sacrifice. God wants our lives. Second, the sacrifice is to be holy. Just as the animal that was offered was to be without blemish, and just as the sacrifice of a crop was to be the pure first fruits, the life we offer in sacrifice should be holy. Third, as a God-pleasing sacrifice, there are many ways we could take this, but at the very least, if it's a pleasing sacrifice, that means it must cost us something, or else it's not really a sacrifice. Something more costly than the animal from your herd. Something more precious than whatever you put in the collection plate this morning. Now, God is interested in what you put in the collection plate, and what we give financially, but God is interested in so much more than that. Really, Paul is saying no more than what the prophecies before him have said. Hosea 6 6, God says, I desire mercy from you, not animal sacrifice. Micah 6 6 through 8, a passage we sometimes hear read on the Lord's Day, says, What should I give to God uh, in return for uh, sacrifice? For the sin of my soul, what can I offer? Animals? My child? And the response is, no, he's shown you what you should give your life. You should seek justice. You should love mercy. You should walk humbly with your God. Well, That sounds a lot like a living sacrifice. Again, why do we do it? Because of God's mercy. The text here in Romans 12 goes, goes on to say that this living, holy, pleasing sacrifice is itself thoughtful worship. So that word that's uh, translated as thoughtful there just means rational, spiritual, again, in contrast to physical animal sacrifices. A lot of people also wonder about that word worship. Is it service or worship? And, And the Greek word behind it can mean both. But it's clear that in this context, Paul is talking about true worship. He's been speaking in the worship language of Israel about offering a sacrifice. And sacrifice is worship in a holy place. It happens in the tabernacle, in the temple, as was already said this morning. In this case, our bodies become the altar and the sacrifice, a holy place. Like the prophets before him, Paul's reminding us of something that we often forget. And that is that worship is not just something we do. One or two hours a week. Now that one or two hours a week in the assembly is of first importance. So don't get me wrong here. Paul isn't saying just be a good person during the week and that's all you need. It's a common thought these days that that horizontal dimension, that service we give to one another throughout the week somehow supersedes the assembly. The thought is that if that service during the week is worship, like Paul says in the Sunday assembly may be superfluous or unnecessary this is incorrect he isn't saying that any more than the Old Testament prophets were literally telling the people to stop the animal sacrifices no those must go on and so when we are assembled here together to receive the gifts of bread and cup in the presence of Christ we are doing what we were created and called to do Our corporate worship assembly is where we, as the body of Christ, together confess and celebrate God's mercy. What He has done for us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Out of that worship assembly flows the sacrifice of gratitude during the week. The living sacrifice. And these are intimately tied together without that vertical attention to God that we give, those acts of service are empty. And conversely, without that horizontal dimension of service and worship, the vertical dimension that we give to God, that worship is incomplete and it means nothing. It's not pleasing to God. I could give a lot of biblical examples that show that this worship includes both a horizontal and a vertical aspect, but I know of no better place than Matthew chapter 5, in verse 23, where Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, okay, that's the vertical worship, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, there's a breach in that horizontal relationship leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your gift. You hear what he's saying there? If you're giving that vertical worship to God, you're offering that sacrifice, but your brother has something against you. He didn't even say if you have something against them, they have something against you, go and be reconciled there to that person. Now, That's a whole other sermon itself that brings up a lot of questions. You can't make someone be reconciled to you. I realize that. But you can go and have that conversation and and, and express your intention to be reconciled. The point here is that these two are intimately tied together.